New to the living healthy lifestyle or a healthy living veteran, this is your place for honest answers. Naturally Savvy with registered holistic nutritionist Andrea Donsky and health journalist Lisa Davis. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Naturally Savvy Radio. I want to mention our sponsor. It is a wonderful nature care for all your feminine hygiene needs. Don't you want to put something in your body and around that area that doesn't have any toxic yuck in it? These are wonderful organic cotton, really wonderful things that you should be using. So please check them out at naturecare.com. They make our podcast possible this month. Just want to give a big shout out to them. Today we have a very special guest. I really adore this woman. She's been on the show in the past and I was just so incredibly impressed. Her book is called Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. Margaret Robinson Rutherford, PhD. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lisa. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is so good to have you on. I remember we talked about this in the past, and I thought that's so interesting, hidden depression. Because usually when people think of depression, I think they think of it's pretty obvious, right? It's like the person seems kind of lackluster, there's something going right. on, or there might be some anger or just something that's not quite right. So what? how do you define perfectly hidden depression? Well, you're exactly right, Lisa. You know, even to meet the criteria for depression, which is one of my points in the book, you have to have what's called depressed mood that's observable and noticeable by you or by other people. That's one of the one of the major criteria for depression. What I meant, what I do mean by perfectly hidden depression is the kind of perfection that the I'm sorry, the kind of depression that can present in a completely different way, meaning these are people who come in my office and they look at me and they sit down and they say, you know, I'm not really sure why I'm here. The The person who was here before probably has a lot greater problems than I do. And they'll laugh. And then they'll say things like, well, I've, I've just been anxious lately, or I'm not sleeping, or it seems like I can't get enough done. And I'll ask them about different things in their childhood and they'll smile and they'll say, oh, you know, I had really a great childhood. And they'll talk about some of the dynamics in their family. But as I listen and if I turn down, if if I turn up the sound and turn off the visual, if I listen to what they're really saying, they're describing very painful things, but they're just not expressing any pain, no painful emotion or very little A great example of this is a woman who came in who it was about her third or fourth session and she was smiling. She's a former beauty queen. And she said, well, you know, you did ask me about sexual abuse in our first session. I said, yes, I normally do. Well, maybe I ought to tell you something. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, I was raped again, very happy. I was raped the week before I started college, but you know, I never told anybody and I just didn't think it was that important. And a big smile came on her face. And I looked at her and I said, are you, do you realize you're smiling? And she said, oh, you know, it was 10 years ago. There's a, there's, these people have the huge tendency to discount any kind of trauma, painful emotion they have learned, they developed a strategy to put together this perfect looking life. They're over-responsible, highly engaged. They are great with their friends, but no one knows them. They 
they volunteer, they work hard, they, they're the people in the community that you think are the leaders, the movers and the shakers. But they're also the people that you'll hear died by suicide and you think, but I just saw them a month ago and they look fine. So there can be this hidden, masked, uh, overlooked depression, denied depression that can be present for many, many years and are actually, they either are aware of it some level or they're actually totally unconscious of what they've been doing for years and years and years. I would think that their upbringing plays a huge role in terms of parents who always have a smile and you tell them you're upset. No, you're not. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Yes, or the children were actually ridiculed or demeaned for having any kind of emotional response to something. And yes, that is one of the, you know, fancy term is etiology for that. But that's how one of how this dynamic can get created. But there are many ways. Um, if you were abused and demeaned again as a child and said you're never going to amount to anything, a lot of times in families, one child, one child is sort of the star of the family, and their their accomplishments become how they're valued, and so they continue that into their adulthood. There are other families where there are addictions, and a child will be will become sort of a pseudo adult and have to take care of everybody in the family and they end up not ever being able to talk about what's going on with them. If you're male, <laughs> you can often be still in certain in certain parts of our country reared like this. There are cultures that don't allow painful emotion to surface. So there are a lot of different factors that can be a part of again my term for it is creating a strategy as a child that help kept you safe kept you protected but then you bring that adult strategy into the your other years your later years and it's simply not working for you it is working for you but it's keeping your life uh too pressured and way too rigid yeah it's so it's working but it's not working because it's keeping you wearing that mask and that phony smile you know one of my favorite movies is strictly ballroom i don't know if you ever saw it it's fantastic it's really funny it's australian film from the 1990s and there's this woman who who's very upset but uh, she takes herself uh, like out of the room and she does this like breathing she's like keep smiling keep smiling (laughs) she goes out in the room (laughs) everything's great it's so funny so it's a very satirical look at at uh, ballroom dancing it's a fantastic film but it just whenever I think about the fake smile and just her, you know that look on her face that you can't show how you really feel, it's so detrimental to you. And so, what are some of the signs that let's say you know someone like oh my gosh I know someone like that? What can you look at and see that okay I think they're depressed. Well, for one thing, again, and I, I particularly think the most obvious thing is to look for that lack of expressed emotion. In fact. Again, uh, researchers in perfectionism will tell you that I just heard my chime. I guess all your listeners heard no, my that chime was beautiful, too. Though. <laughs> Thank you. It'll go off every few seconds. I, for, I, I forgot it was in there. Um, researchers will tell you that perfectionists can describe their feelings, but they cannot express their feelings. I thought that was such an interesting finding. You'll have someone, for example, whose best friend um, moved out of town. And they don't show any sadness about it. They don't express anything. They just say, well, you know, it's one of those things she had to move. But if you if you, if you start tuning in, you'll see that nothing really uh, gets under their skin or it doesn't appear to. 
Now, a lot of the times that's because they have no words for those feelings, but they really don't know how to be in an emotion. The other things you may notice, you know, people ask me all the time, but so, so what's wrong with perfectionism? There's nothing wrong with perfectionism if it's striving for excellence, if it's wanting to do well. But this kind of perfectionism is fueled by an intense, critical inner voice. It's about shame. Shame shame keeps these people going. And we can go more into a little later if you want to, something called socially prescribed perfectionism, which is actually the most dangerous kind, where people feel that they must constantly reach higher and higher expectations of other people. And it can be extremely, extremely debilitating. These folks uh, worry a lot, but they don't let you see that they worry a lot. These are folks that have to be in control. Um, I've already said they discount or deny trauma. These are people who always have their hand up in the air to take responsibility for something. And that has something to do actually with the worry because let's say their child is in the fifth grade and the fifth grade class is going to put on a play. Well, they'll think, well, I don't want the play to be bad, and I think I could probably do the play better than everybody else. So their worry and their sense of being out of control actually works with this over-responsibility, and it's sort of a vicious cycle of, I don't want to worry, so I'll take control of it, but that adds to all this responsibility I have. They don't ever take anything off their plate when they add something to it. Um, again, these people are really good friends. People will say, I just, I don't know, she's always there for me. But when they stop and think about it, they don't know too much about their friend. They really don't know what they struggle with or what they feel vulnerable about. They count their blessings all the time. Um, I did a show on Sunday with a really nice radio show in Alabama, and it's a religious radio show. And a lot of times I find out that sometimes people of faith struggle with this more than anything else. They feel like if they that they have so many things to be grateful for, their faith being one of them, that they shouldn't ever complain or or they shouldn't ever struggle with something because they do have a lot of blessings. But my point is that even a blessing has an underbelly. Let's say you have four children and you love your four children and you wanted a big family and it's you're so grateful that you could have four healthy children. But those four healthy children have four sports uh, teams they're on and four sets of homework. And, you know, they, there's hardship to having four children. So, but a lot of times people say, I just need to be so grateful. Um, the other thing, and this is the last one that's actually a tangible one, is uh, these people don't have a way of feeling valuable except to check off tasks that they do. Um, and so their their day is they've got their list and, you know, it's checking off things off their list. Um, you also may have, just as a 10th trait, a co-occurrence of some kind of anxiety disorder, like an, uh, disorders that are about control, eating disorders, uh, generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, so oftentimes these people will have a problem that is actually a diagnosable problem. It's it's important to note, sorry, all of this is meshing together. It's important to note that perfectly hidden depression is not a diagnosis. It would be pretty narcissistic of me to believe that I could come up with some diagnosis all on my own in the psychological world. 
it's, it's what I call a syndrome, which is a set of beliefs or behaviors that are found together. You find them kind of like salt and pepper. And for example, codependence is a syndrome. Uh, nobody knew what codependence was until some people sat down and thought, what do partners of alcoholics have in common? And they listed these traits. And sure enough, that got to be called codependence. So we use the term for a lot of things now, but in its initial uh, creation, that's what it was about. It was a syndrome. I believe that perfectly hidden depression is a syndrome. Well, I want to move to part two in your book, the five stages of healing, because you did a great job laying the groundwork of perfectly hidden depression. Consciousness, commitment, confrontation, connection, change. So those are five C's. Now, I have to tell you my story of terror. Please do. (laughs) I had the most positive um, uh, interaction and relationship with my publisher, New Harbinger. I could not say good enough things about them. They are absolutely wonderful. However, when they first started thinking about buying the book, I had basically written a book in my naivete that simply described perfectly hidden depression. I thought, okay, I'm going to put this out there and say, I think this is a problem and I think we're missing the problem. They said, no, no, no. (laughs) We've got to have a healing strategy. And we've got to have it in two weeks. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) There's the terror. And it was right before Thanksgiving. And I was like, oh, my God, what are you talking about? A treatment strategy in two weeks. But then I calmed myself down, ate some turkey, calmed myself down (laughs) and said, okay, you know, now that I have whatever that drug is that turkey gives you, I was a little calmed down. There you go. I thought, all right, what do I do with every patient I see? And I started thinking, all right, we have to define the problem as a problem. They either think it is a problem or they don't see it as a problem. We have to become conscious of it or I have to help them become conscious of it or myself if it's my own problem. I have to help them commit to change because sometimes change is so hard. It's it our lives get can get worse before they get better. That's a common attribute of therapy. And there's certain things that perfectionists especially struggle with with this stage. Then what do I do? I help them confront the things that are keeping them held back, the rules, the things they believe that are just simply not rational. This is strongly taken from cognitive behavioral work. The fourth was connection. You have to connect with emotions, trauma, feelings, experiences that you have not wanted to connect with, that you have felt was too dangerous to do so, or that was your fault that you have shame for. You have to pull out those things that you have rigidly compartmentalized and have compassion for yourself. I use a thing in this uh, section called a trauma timeline. That's a, it's, I'm not the one who made it up. It's many therapists use it, but you go back and you, you look at the things that were positive in your life that caused some positive reper, uh, repercussions in your life. And then you go back and think, but what were the more negative ones? What were the ones, whether I was two or four or eight or 17 or 27, what are the things that were hard for me that maybe I need to have compassion for? Then the last one, Change is really about what I believe as a truism after watching people try to get better in therapy for 25 years and myself. I think you get a lot from insight. 
Insight is a wonderful thing. It it helps you see patterns. It helps you make, it helps you connect the dots. It helps you do all kinds of things. But where you get your hope from is behavior change. When you see yourself putting down that drink or not even pouring yourself one, when you see yourself wanting to yell at your child but stopping, when you see yourself wishing you had more self-confidence and you understand why you don't, but then you do something that you think, wow, I'm a little more confident than I was yesterday. I spoke up in a meeting. I I made a suggestion um, at the volunteer, at the committee meeting that I wouldn't have made two or three or weeks ago or even months ago. I am changing. My behavior is changing. And that's where you get your hope. So that's the five C's. Consciousness, commitment, confrontation, connection, and change. I would think the hardest part was to look at the traumatic event. For example, going back to that woman that you mentioned, when you said to her, you just mentioned you were raped before college and you're, you know, realize you're smiling. I mean, that, that's a lot to break through. Yes, it is. A lot of trauma victims are actually like that, Lisa. They either have lived with it so long. I mean, these are not the people who have PTSD about it. Those, those folks have a whole nother problem about trauma. And I have great empathy and compassion for those people. These people have denied that the trauma existed, whether it's because they don't call it trauma. They'll kind of look at me and go, I wasn't traumatized. I wasn't abused. That I wouldn't even call it that. They kind of shiver when I use the term. So it's about kind of saying, well, uh, for example, a man comes to mind who said laughingly again and somewhat sarcastically, yeah, my mom used to throw big rocks at me and tell me to get out of the yard and she didn't want to see me for three days and I could just go you know, survive on my own. And I looked at him and I said, so what would you say to that little boy right now if you could? And he just stopped and the smile was off his face. He said, I would tell him that he didn't deserve to have rocks thrown at him. And I said, you're right. That little boy, this man, by the, by the way, had had an entirely successful, really, really good career, but had retired and had started drinking heavily because without accomplishment, he didn't know what to do with himself. So he, I looked at him and I said, that little boy is still inside of you that doesn't know what to do when you don't have the structure of work to prove to your mother or to yourself that you don't deserve having rocks thrown at you. So sometimes they have norm they've normalized something and they don't see it. I keep on saying they. I have certainly some perfectionistic tendencies myself. I don't think I've ever had perfectly hidden depression completely, but I do have perfectionistic tendencies and I did also discount some things that had happened to me as a child. But anyway, they, they, to even invest in the idea that this is something that for anyone, to acknowledge that for anyone that would be hard and to go back and have some self-acceptance and self-compassion about that is a huge breakthrough for people. Well, what's great is that in the book, you have building a timeline to achieve emotional awareness and growth. You have compassion, acknowledgement, mindful connection, and acceptance. Right. Right. I try to, again, outline steps for people so that they could try to use this book if they so desired as a self-help workbook. Yeah, great. 
I also I also say frequently in the book, however, that this is not a space or a time to be some sort of superhero. That if you're struggling, if you're getting anywhere closer to any dark thoughts of hurting yourself or or you're thinking more ill of yourself than you are well, or this becomes too hard and you're falling apart, that you must seek professional help. Sometimes when trauma does break through as trauma, it can break through so quickly and so ferociously that you're really taken off guard. And um, so I think that I'm, I try to really encourage people to be honest with themselves and I say, you know, take the book into a therapist, take the, take the book into your doctor and say, I've been able to get through half this book, but I can't do the rest. I need help. Yeah, I think that is such a great, oh, sorry, let me edit that. I think that's fantastic. You know, stage five, you have change your focus from perfection to true happiness. And you have a quote from Kristen Neff. I, I've interviewed her. She's wonderful. The author of oh, she is incredible. Compassion. And people get the book, they can read the quote. <laughs> I love her, but self-compassion is such a huge part of this. And this is something that these folks are lacking. Almost entirely, Yes. Um, I'm trying to think of someone else who comes to mind. Um, there was a man I worked with who had had multiple affairs and was very successful otherwise. In fact, he told me when he came in that people told him all the time he had the perfect family. And um, his wife had stayed with him. Uh, he'd actually gotten suicidal and he was at a psychiatric hospital and he came in and worked with me. And at the time, he didn't understand at all what was wrong because he said my parents you know always told me I could do anything I wanted to do and my mom said to, she bragged to all her friends not only can let's call him John not only can John be the star basketball player but he can play the piano and and he looked at me and he said you know and he was laughing of course <laughs> and he said I even gave a senior recital but I didn't want to I hated it and I said, so why did you do it? And he said, because my mom counted on me. It was the only thing she, only connection we had is how I could make her happy. And that's called enmeshment. And he had never seen enmeshment as a bad thing. He had just seen, or as a hurtful or unhealthy thing. He had seen it as, I'm getting to finally please my mom. But also there was intense pressure to do things he had no desire to do. Guess what that turned into as an adult? He didn't want to follow the rules. <laughs> you know, he didn't want to, he, when he got tired of following the rules, he turned into a bad boy. And bad boys have affairs. But the affairs didn't bring him any happiness. In fact, he loved his wife. He simply did not know how to share much of himself with her at all. He did some great work, some great work. Now, he didn't turn into someone who would walk in the kitchen after work and go, hey, honey, I just want to tell you how <laughs> much, you know, I love you. And I mean, these people don't change from daylight to dark, but they can, they can begin to understand the ways they cover up and keep themselves completely masked and so that they can be more available. You know, in chapter five, you have breaking the silence and discovering a happier life. And you write, so far we focus on changes within you, changes that have allowed much more emotional freedom and that have challenged strategies and rules that no longer need to be followed. Uh, but but what, a, that again, 
But what about breaking the silence of perfectly hidden depression and beginning to invite others to get to know the new imperfect you? That could be scary. Yes. Very scary. In, in fact, I actually stole. I asked her if I could. <laughs> <laughs> I was seeing someone who had come in to see me because of my writing. And she had read it and she said, I need your help. I am this person. And the more we worked, the more she used the phrase, I'm so scared to break my silence. And with her family, with her husband especially, um, she had just stayed almost invisible to other people. And she had gone through multiple traumas, multiple miscarriages where she was the stoic one. She never had any problems. She was bright and smiling. And then they ended finally having a child. And she, with the birth of this child, it actually caused her to have this grief reaction that she didn't understand, but that she felt so ashamed of because she, while she was watching her daughter become this wonderful child that she loved so much, she also all of a sudden was hit with all this grief that she had kept far away. She was reared in a family where you didn't talk about anything negative or painful. Um, that was still true of the family that she'd grown up in. But her husband, interestingly enough, kept saying to her, I don't know you. Who are you? I want to know you. And she had just kind of flippantly said, you know me, you know me, you know, you know me better than anybody. And when she looked at me, she said, I'm so scared to let him know who I really am. So that kind of breaking the silence can cause huge change in relationships and frankly, not always positive. Because what if you married someone or you're partnered with someone who's also liking to stay perfect looking, perfect looking, who doesn't want to talk about their feelings? Or you're married to someone who needs you to be really uber responsible. And so they, they're they not particularly responsible at all. And they need you to, to keep your, uh, your energy going on the family. And they don't need you to have better self-care. So... You can run into some problems uh, from people who don't know what to do with the change. In fact, I had to laugh. I use this in the book. So if you read it all, you've read it this too. But I had a, a mom tell me one time that she'd announced to her family that she was going to do a better job of taking care of herself. And she wasn't going to be so plugged into everything that everybody else needed all the time. And her adolescent son said, Mom, that is so good. I'm so proud of you. Can you do that with everybody but me? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something my daughter would say. <laughs> yeah. I'm obviously pointing out how much I learn all the time from the people I work with. It's happened for 25 years, but, you know, I started getting interested. I, I had never wanted to write a book, Lisa. I love being a therapist. I don't need to, to be on anybody's bestseller list or whatever. I mean, I just don't need that. I never wanted it. But when I wrote my first post on it, I think this is what, what you and I talked about a couple of years ago. Um, I, my post at that point had gotten maybe, I don't know, I was lucky if they got 50 shares. But I wrote the post, the perfectly hidden depressed person, are you one, thinking about some of these people that I had seen. And it went viral. And when it appeared on the Huffington Post, I got hundreds of emails from people saying, how do you know about this? How do you know I do this? Nobody knows I do this. 
And I, that's why I kept the phrase perfectly hidden depression, because it has made such an impact on people who say, this is what made me read your article, or this is what would make me want to read your book, even though I'm, I'm having to hide that I'd read it. <laughs> I would, I would find a way to buy it because of this. So yeah, they'll have it stashed inside a magazine, you know, <laughs> look like they're looking at yeah. Sports Illustrated or something. Yeah. Whatever it takes, right. people have got to read this book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. Dr. Rutherford, um, do you work with people on Skype or do you have to be in person? Right now, I just don't do any virtual therapy. I um, I have gotten... Like I need to. <laughs> I, I've played around with Zoom some. Um, I've actually been a little concerned about it ethically, but I have found out that there's some kind of certification you can get. Uh, legally, you're only supposed to see people as a psychologist that you have a license where they live. If you have a, if you're in Texas, I have to have a license in Texas to see you. Uh, so I'm only licensed to see people in Arkansas. But I'm going to look into that certification as soon as whatever happens with the book happens and see, because I do have people that would really like to talk with me, especially about this. And I'd like to talk to them because I'm not through learning about yeah, it. Yeah. And I, I would love to talk with oh, them as I've, well. I had, but I had another psychologist who said that too, that there's some kind of health coaching or something you can do to kind of work your way around that. Cause that would be incredible. Right, right. So I'm I'm going to look into that. I uh, have a full practice, which I've maintained throughout writing this book, which they've been very patient with me. I've not been able to work as long as I have uh, or many hours as I have. But um, I'm, you know, I want to, to try to help more people like this. I've had somebody come in in the last couple of weeks who had waited to see me and she's somewhat she's she's a little older than me. And she said, you know, I'm so tired of living my life this way. And please, can you help me stop? And she's already done some great work with self-acceptance and talk about breaking her silence. She's really started to do that. Oh, so that is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you see people on all types of, sorry, I'm going to ask it again. Do you have patients with all different types of psychological issues that they're dealing with in addition to perfectly hidden depression? Oh, of course. Of course. I see a lot of people with anxiety. I've done a lot of trauma work, which is not always, you know, sometimes that's PTSD and people are dealing with all kinds of nightmares and flashbacks and um, very real experiences of what they know was trauma, what has been defined by them as trauma. Um, I work with couples a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, I found it very, very challenging to work with couples. And I, I love doing that work. So it's, uh, you have to stay on your toes to do that work for <laughs> sure. Um, but I am, um, I don't, there, there's probably some areas I don't, I don't know much about ADD or ADHD, although I've had patients with that. I don't work particularly much with addictions, although you can't be a mental health professional without running into addictions these days for sure. Um, but this has been my passion. This some you know, someone has equated writing this book with having my second child and that does feel like that. The labor pains nearly kill me, that's for sure. <laughs> well, it, it's an incredible book, Dr. Rutherford. Thank you. you really did such an amazing job. Tell everyone where they can find it and how to find out more about you. Sure. Um, well, I feel like I'm all over the place on social <laughs> media, but um, I have a, a website, drmargaretrutherford.com. I have a podcast, the Self Work Podcast with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Um, that I've been doing that for about oh, three wonderful. years. I blog. I blog on my website once a week. 
Um, you can find the book at really any local bookstore is able to order it. Your indie bookstores, Amazon has it now. Barnes & Noble has it. Um, so you can find it, um, or actually you can order it from the publisher, which is New Harbinger, H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R. So you can order it there as well. And it's a, it's not only in paperback, but it's in, e in an ebook. And it's supposedly supposed to come out as an audible book, but I don't think that's been done yet. I think that's in the works. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Well, this has been such a treat. You, you're welcome anytime. You're such a gem. Tell us the name of your podcast again. Sure. It's called the Self-Work Podcast. Self-Work, S-E-L-F-W-O-R-K with the S and the W capitalized. Oh, okay. So the Self-Work Podcast mm -hmm. with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. It's on, it's everywhere. It's on Stitcher. It's on uh, Podbean. It's on Apple Podcast. It's on Spotify. It's on iHeartRadio. All, all oh, those. wonderful. I'm going to be listening. I'm such a huge fan. This is fantastic. Well, before we go, I want to thank Nature Care. Now, remember, women, it's time to rethink your period. Let's say goodbye to plastics, perfumes, irritating synthetics. Check out Nature Care's organic and natural feminine hygiene products. They're made with chlorine free, plastic free, biodegradable materials. Nature Care is soft on the skin, soft on the environment. I love that. Their range of period products are the number one choice for women looking for sustainable feminine hygiene that doesn't let them down. You can get it online or in health stores around the U.S. And check them out, NatureCare, that's N-A-T-R-A-C-A-R-E.com. And I want to thank everyone for listening to Naturally Savvy. Andrea is going to be super bummed she missed out on today. We were having some technical issues, so I just want to uh, say she'll be with us next time. And everybody follow us on Twitter, um, at Andrea Donsky, at Your Radio MD, at Naturally Savvy, and at Health Media Gal 1. Thanks for listening, and stay well.